Amen. Y'all can take a seat. Welcome to REF, everybody. Uh, my name is Joe Johnson, the campus minister here. If I haven't met you, I would love to meet you. So introduce yourself to me uh, in the back after this is over. Uh, my wife's 36th birthday tonight. Woo! And uh, a week after, no, two days after our honeymoon, she had to come on REF summer conference when we were interns at Auburn. Our first Valentine's Day as a married couple, she had to go to REF winter conference. When we were at Auburn, and now for her 36th birthday, she's at an REF large group. Never in a million years did she think that the dream of marrying a campus minister would come true. Um, but y'all, to have a birthday too on the way out. We love her. Um, we're continuing our series on the book of Colossians. This four-chapter book in the New Testament is a letter. A letter written by a man named Paul, the Apostle Paul, to this little and new church of people who are coming to know Jesus and growing more in the faith. And the main point of the letter we have said is that Paul is telling them that Jesus is enough. Uh, Jesus is better. Jesus is all that you need. That the life that we all long for, the full life that we yearn for, is only found in Christ alone. And we just got done with a section, a little intro section of Paul being encouraged by what he sees in these people, that they're living the Christian life. And now he's going to talk in this section that we're going to read tonight. Only about Jesus. Doesn't say anything about the church. Doesn't say anything about us. Only talks about Jesus showing the life of following Christ is the life of looking at Christ. Of knowing him. Of being in awe of him. Paul's going to tell us about Jesus tonight. It's one of the most famous verses about Jesus. And I'm a little nervous to preach this because it's so beautiful. That the best thing I'm going to do tonight is simply just to read it. So let this wash over you. This is Colossians 1. Starting in verse 15, where Paul is going to tell us that Jesus is better than we think he is. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord will stand forever and ever and ever. Let me pray and ask for God's help. Uh, Jesus, this is just too beautiful. And um, we could spend an eternity talking about this, thinking about this, and we will. Uh, But Lord, for just a quick moment tonight, help us reflect on this. And Jesus, our prayer every week is that we could see you more clearly and find you more beautiful. And there might not be a better text in the scriptures to help us do that. Help us to be in awe of you tonight. In Christ's name, amen. I wonder if you have someone in your life who knows you so well that even when you're acting like everything is fine, they're able to know that something's up. Like a roommate that just kind of knows you're faking it, something's going on. It's usually like moms are good at this, right? Uh, Like uh, you come home for the weekend and and maybe you broke up with someone, someone broke up with you or you're not doing well in school or whatever it might be and you get home. And you just think, okay, I'm, I'm just, I don't want to deal with that right now. I'm just going to fake it Friday to Sunday. Just fake it. They'll never know. And moms 
A lot of moms, like within an hour, it's just like, something's wrong. Just tell me, right? Um, April's really good at this with me. My personality is more like, uh, I just want everyone to be happy. And so if I have something that I'm dealing with, sadness or anger or whatever, my highs and lows, they're just not that much different, right? You can't really tell. Uh, April's been married for almost 10 years. She's, she's just sort of aware. I can come in. I can fake it. I can just play with the kids. I can help with dinner. I can make jokes. And she's able within a few minutes to kind of say, like, can you do, what's up? Just tell me what's going on, right? And the way she's able to do that is because she knows me so well, how I normally am so well, that she can tell when even just a little bit of me is off. Right? Jesus, or Paul here, is going to do this with the Colossians tonight and us. That what he wants, he's talking to this church, it's being told that Jesus is great, but you need more. Uh, Jesus is great, but it's going to be Jesus plus something theology. Uh, Jesus plus uh, experiences that we can only give you. Uh, Jesus is great, but you also need um, secret knowledge that we only have. Jesus is great, but really to have a full life, it's Jesus plus these things we need you to do. And what's fascinating is that Paul does not start critiquing that theology. He doesn't start picking it apart. Like, let me tell them why they're down. Let me tell them why they're wrong. What he does is, let me show you a more clear picture of who Jesus really is. In other words, what Paul wants for these Christians, what Paul wants for us is to know Jesus so well. To know what he's like. To know what his heart looks like. That we will know in a second when we're told about a counterfeit. To know him. That that, that Jesus invites us to know him, what he's like. So that when the world promises something that sounds like it, we know it's not him. Because we know him so well. Paul tells us Jesus is better than you think. And so we're going to narrow that focus and look at Jesus. Why is he better than we think? And it's no less than this. That what Paul tells us in this passage is that, that we in Jesus, we see that God is with his people and God is for his people. In Jesus, we see that God is with his people and God is for his people. Okay? Three things as we unpack that together. Talk about that Jesus is God. It's the first thing we talk about. Secondly, that in Jesus, God is with us, his people. And thirdly, in God, Jesus is for us. In Jesus, God is for us. All right? Jesus is God, with us, for us. So first, Jesus is God. Why is Jesus better than we think? What does Paul first start at? He tells us this, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. I cannot tell you how much ink has been spilled on just those few words. Uh, We could talk about that for the rest of the night, for the rest of the semester, for eternity. What is Paul saying? It could sound like he's saying that Jesus is kind of like God. It sounds like he's just sort of a picture of what God's sort of like. But what he's really saying here is that Jesus is God. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. But in other words, what does it mean that he's the image of the invisible God? It means that Paul is saying, if you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus. And why is that important? Because we're sometimes tempted to believe that, look, when I read about Jesus in the Gospels, it sounds great. He seems like a wonderful man. But Though he's great, it seems like there's like an angry God behind him. Like God in the New Testament, Jesus, he's great. But what about the God of the Old Testament who seems angry? But what Paul is doing is pushing us to see, if you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus. 
Look at his earthly ministry. Look at the way he talked to people. Look at the way he was around people. Look at the people who were attracted to him. If you want to know God, you look at Jesus. Why? Because it's Jesus that God came to be with his people and to be for his people. But before we even get there, we really have to unpack what does it mean that Jesus is God? Because he sort of unpacks his resume here, doesn't he? Look at what he goes on to say. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, again, a lot of ink spilled on this. It sort of sounds like God was created, right? The firstborn of God, that there was a time where Jesus wasn't. That's not what it's saying. That this is actually a kind of turn of phrase in the ancient Near East culture. With the firstborn son, it's not saying that Jesus was just like born one day. The firstborn son was the seat of authority. That all authority was given to him and that the firstborn son gets the inheritance. And what is Jesus' inheritance? It's all of creation. All of it is for him. And how do we know this? It's the second thing on on Jesus' resume here that Paul says. It's verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions and rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. What is this saying? That Jesus is the God who spoke the world into existence. Jesus created the world, and it was created by him, and it was created for him. That Jesus Jesus created you. He made you in your personality. He made this world. He stands above it. Why, when Jesus spoke to a storm, and it calmed perfect peace after he spoke to it, why did that happen? It's because creation heard the voice of its creator. Jesus being God means Jesus spoke this world into creation, sovereign over it. But not just that, he goes on to say, verse 17, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Uh, Another translation of that is that all things are sustained by Jesus. Meaning that he doesn't just create this world, he sustains it. He holds it together. And as one commentator said that if Jesus were to stop holding this, stop sustaining this world, it would all go back to nothing in a moment. That we don't have a God who created this world and stood back and wondered if his people would be worth it. Let's just see what happens. He is the creator and sustainer of our existence. He holds your life in his hands, your world in his hands. But he goes on even more. He's not just the creator. He's not just the sustainer. But he's also the one in charge of renewing this creation. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Not only is Jesus the one who speaks it into existence, he's also the one that's going to make this world new, the firstborn of the dead, to usher his people into a resurrection hope. He is the head of his church, his people that the gates of hell cannot prevail against. And he's preeminent. What does preeminent mean? He is above all things, all things for him, that everything is pointing to Jesus. It's all his. He's king. He's supreme. He's over all of it. Now, here's the question of all that. What does that matter about our lives now? What does it mean about how we are to live now? Well, I think we have to see Jesus being preeminent. Jesus being over all of those things means he's the answer to all of the deep questions of our heart. Like, think about this. 
The question of why does God really matter about my life now? Like, what, is it, what does Jesus really matter now? What does God matter? Not just Sunday mornings, but Wednesday nights. Or, or, or what about Mondays at noon? What about when I'm stressed out? What about late at night Fridays? What does it matter? What does God have to do with my life now? And, God, and Paul answering that question says, look at Jesus. He's the one who invented you. He's the one that spoke you into existence. Your personality is the way it is because Jesus dreamed you up. He's the one that created Mississippi State. He's the one who created your friends. He's the one who created alcohol. He's the one who created joy. He's the one who has your future planned. He loves you. He has you. And all of your world is this. Is there another person that's more applicable for you to know than that? He matters everywhere in our life. He's king over everything. What about a question like, okay, could a God like that Who's this powerful and this wonderful? Could he love me? In other words, what do I do with my guilt and shame? I don't, I don't, I don't live up to this. Does he care about me? And Paul again says to ask that question. It's a great question to ask that question. He says, look at Jesus. The infinite son of God who came for his people. Naked on a cross. Does God love us? Look at Jesus. He loves us to an infinite degree. What about the question, what do I do about pain and suffering? If God's so good and he's so sovereign, why do I have to go through all this stuff? What about injustice? What about racism? What about pain? What about death? Why? And I can't give you a pithy answer to that question. That's a huge question. But you know what Paul's answer to that question would probably be? Look at Jesus. Look at his earthly ministry. What did he do? He fought against injustice. He talked about justice. He healed broken people and sick people. He spent most of his time around people that no one wanted to be around. And he's the one that talked about sins and forgiveness and redemption and making all things new. Do you want to know God? Paul says, look at Jesus. Because showing this powerful God is actually meant to poke and prod our hearts that we would see him as someone we can't walk away from. This isn't meant to scare us. It's meant to attract us. And my daughter and I are reading um, uh, Chronicles of Narnia at night, one chapter at a time. And we're, uh, we just, we're ending uh, The Magician's Nephew, the first one. Right? She's not really keeping up with it, but we read it before then. And we had just finished the time. If you haven't read it, it's okay. I'll explain it. We just finished the chapter where Aslan creates Narnia. And Diggory and his friends, Polly, and a few other people kind of stumble upon this world. It's a blank world, a blank canvas. And they see this lion. And they're scared because it's a lion. They don't know what this kind of world is like. And the lion begins to sing. And it's kind of a strange thing, right? A lion singing. But as he's singing, all of a sudden trees begin to sprout. Mountains come out of nothing. Oh, rivers, a beautiful creation, animals, all this. And he sings a different note and something different happens. They're just watching this, right? Blown away by his power, still kind of scared because he's lying. Is he going to destroy us? What's he going to do? This is, this is different than anything that we've known. And actually C.S. Lewis, as he writes, it talks about how scared they were of him. But Diggory couldn't help but drawing near to him, this little boy, and moving closer to him. 
And actually what Diggory finds out is that he actually brought evil into this world. He messed up this world already, even its first hour. And he wonders, is this lion going to kill him? Is he going to be angry at him? But he still draws closer to him because he wants to ask the lion a question. That Aslan, can you do anything to save my mother who's sick in my world? Like he, saw, he sees this great power and this great might and even has a little bit of fear and he trembles before it, but he sees it as so attractive. Why? Because that thing can help the deepest needs of my life. If anyone can do anything, it's that one. I think that's what Paul's doing here. Do we believe in a Jesus that, that is so powerful we can't help but bring our biggest needs to him because he's the only one that can do anything about it? I think oftentimes we live in the small Jesus. They're just kind of added to our life. But Paul paints the picture of a king, supreme over everything. And if he can do all this, he can also make his people new. Do you see Jesus like that? He's God. But then secondly, in Jesus we see that God is with his people. In Jesus we see that God is with his people. He doesn't just say he creates and sustains the world. Paul goes on to say a little bit of what this God is like, what Jesus is like. And we skip down to verse 19 where he says this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Another couple words that we could spend an eternity trying to talk about, trying to figure out. And again, a lot of ink is spilled on this, but what is it saying? It's saying this wonderful truth of who Jesus is. That Jesus is 100% man and 100% God, right? So many heresies have come from the misunderstanding of that, but this is who Jesus is, 100% man, really a man when he was here, flesh, blood, got hungry, all of those things, but he didn't leave his godness behind, but the fullness of God dwelt in him. And it's a beautiful thing to think about, right? Because God came into his creation, took on flesh, God appeared as one of us. And you have to wonder, okay, well, what did he come here to do? Because after hearing how powerful he is, and after hearing that he created the world, and he shows up and sees this mess of a world with our sin and rebellion, is he going to come just to get angry and just to say, y'all need to clean this up? But no. What was the beautiful thing of Jesus coming? Is that he was Emmanuel. God with us. That in God coming in the form of man shows one of the central desires of God is to be with his people. To dwell among his people. To save us, he became one of us. And this is what God's been doing from the very beginning. That God created Adam and Eve to do what? To walk with them in the cool of the day. To be with them, to have a relationship with them. That they would know him and he would know them. That even after sin, God continued to pursue his people, making covenantal promises to his people, speaking to his people, appearing to his people. And when God's people were wandering around the desert for 40 years, what did God do? He dwelt in a tent in the midst of them. If they're in a tent, I'm in a tent. And when they dwelt in Jerusalem, he dwelt in a building because that's where his people are. And in Jesus, it's the fullness of this promise that God appeared himself to be with his people. And y'all think about, like, the humility of that. The gentleness of that. That the infinite Son of God, 
from glory, from perfection, came to be a baby. The, the Son of God came to be a baby who was completely dependent upon his mother, the woman he created. He spoke her into existence. That he had to learn to walk. That the Son of God had to learn to talk. That he got hungry. That he needed naps. That he had to go through whatever the first century version of middle school and teenagers was. That he had to get a job. And this, I think about this. The infinite Son of God had to learn how to be a carpenter from his dad with stones and wood that he created and to learn it from the guy that he created. That Jesus went to the temple to learn the Bible from a priest whom he spoke into existence, a Bible that he spoke, his word, and a temple that actually pointed forward to his work altogether. That Jesus came willing to be humiliated for his people. Because here it is, y'all, like, you know someone loves another person by what they're willing to do for that other person. And no one knows this more than girl dads. I'm a girl dad. Girl dads are willing to humiliate themselves and embarrass themselves just to hang out with their little girls. Girl dads play pretty, pretty princess. And win, because we're really competitive. And at the end of Pretty Pretty Princess, when you win, what are you doing? You are wearing two earrings, a tiara, a necklace, and a bracelet, and a ring. Girl dads paint with every sort of color of pink, if that's what our daughters want to play with. Uh, girl dads watch princess movies and have very strong opinions about them. Uh, girl dads coach soccer, even though I've never played soccer in my life and I don't even really understand the rules. But I coached soccer and I coached my daughter to be a goalie and she was a terrible goalie because I don't really understand how to play soccer. Girl dads do face paint, even though that's my worst nightmare and I hate it so much. But why do girl dads do all that silly stuff, right? We do it with a, with a smile on our face and a joy in our hearts because we just love being with our little girls. Like, this is going to sound like heresy, but it's not. I'm going to edit that part out of the podcast later. <laughs> Do you know that it's a true thing to say that God was willing to be humiliated to be with his people? In theology, we, we call it Jesus' humiliation. That he came not just to be with his people, but to be naked on a cross for their sake. That what was he willing to do to be with his people? Give up everything in order to be near us, in order to rescue us, in order to be with us for eternity. Do you see the love of God as we looked at what he was willing to do to be near his people? God is with us. And on this side of the cross, do you know how near us he is? Jesus isn't here physically anymore. But by his spirit, he dwells within his people's hearts. Do we know God like that? He's always pursuing. And he's pursuing us even right now. But then thirdly, Jesus shows us that he's for his people. Jesus is for his people. We understand that he's with us, right? If he's willing to do all that, he's willing to stay with you in the midst of a breakup. He's willing to do all that. He's willing to stay with you in the midst of a parent's divorce or your depression or anxiety. But it doesn't just end that he's with his people. 
we have to also see that he's for his people. And this is the last verse of the night. This is um, verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. What did Jesus come here to do? What was his central goal in appearing as man? It was to reconcile a people to himself, to reconcile a world, to make this place new. And the question is, how is he going to do that? But this almost graphic image of the blood of the cross. In other words, Jesus has come to hang out with his people. And the cross actually isn't just a display of his love. Something actually happened. Something for his people. That what we see in the death of Christ is the pattern that the Bible sets up of one death and substitute for another. That Jesus came to die for us people. Condemned he stood in our place. And it was in front of us all along. Like the disciples didn't see it coming. They fought against it. No way he's going to die. Like we've given our lives to him. No way you need to die. We'll protect you, right? And if we were disciples at that point, we would have done the same exact thing. It doesn't make sense in our minds. But it was in front of us all along. This pattern throughout the Bible of one death for another. That Adam sinned. And sin, brokenness, rebellion, everything. Death entered into the world. And what's the payment for sin? It's death. But Adam didn't die that day, did he? Live for hundreds of years later. But what does God do in response to man's sin? He casts them out of the garden and he kills an animal and clothes Adam and his wife to keep them warm. An amazing gift of grace. But do you see it? One death for another. Thousands of years later, God's people were enslaved in Egypt. And God sent uh, plagues to free his people. And the last plague, do you remember the last plague was the death of the firstborn son? Of every family, except for the ones that believed in God, that would paint blood of a lamb on their doorpost, that the Spirit of God would pass over that house, saving the son. Do you see that pattern? One death for another? The death of the lamb instead of the death of God's people? Like, the Old Testament sacrificial system. That's the part of the Bible where we usually start skipping when we get to our New Year's resolution Bible reading plans. We get to like Leviticus and we're talking about whole burnt offerings and we don't really know what to do with this. What's the point of that whole thing? It's the pattern over and over and over again. Our sin needs to be brought to justice. Our sin needs to be paid for. Our sin has to be paid for in blood. It's one death for another, but his people weren't dying. It was a substitute death. But even Hebrews says the blood of bulls and rams it will never cleanse us of our sins. All of it was getting God's people ready for a pattern. The ultimate death. That Jesus came as the Lamb of God. That Jesus came for his people to stand in their place, to become sin itself. To take the punishment that his people deserved. He went to the cross bearing the sins Joe Johnson did. And Joe Johnson will do. And so when I stand in judgment one day, do you know, God doesn't hold that sin against me. It's already been paid for. But Jesus doesn't just forgive us our sin in that substitution. He actually clothes us in Christ's perfect life. That when God looks at Joe Johnson, he actually sees Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' perfection. That I stand in judgment not because of anything that I've done, because of what Jesus has accomplished for me. Do you see it? One death for another. 
And do you see that answers like every question we have about ourselves? Do you see how freeing this is? Am I good enough? No. But in Jesus, you are. Because he is. Am I guilty? Do I have shame? Yes. More than we'd ever know, actually. But in Jesus, there's forgiveness and innocence and renewal. Do I have to continue to prove myself? No. Jesus has already done everything needed for you to live the full life in God. Am I loved? More than we could ever imagine. With the evidence being the Son of God, naked upon a cross, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This makes sense of everything in our life. This is the central desire that we have to be loved like this, to be renewed and forgiven like this, and it's all found in Jesus. I love what Paul does here. I think so often Christians are better at talking about what we're against than what we're for. I think we're talking about, we're good at talking about, um, we're good at arguing theology. We're good at talking about and picking people's arguments apart, but I think we need to talk about Jesus more like Paul does. Because here's what he's doing. He's talking to this scared church, this confused church. This church is actually on the precipice of a lot of suffering before them. And you know what he tells them? Look at Jesus again and again and again. And know in him you have everything you need. I have a friend who um, told me a story about his kids. And he was kind of giving advice. That there's coming a day, one day, where your kids will find out that the world has scary stuff in it. Uh, for a while, kids just think, like, everything always works out. And eventually, your kids will figure out, like, there's just bad things. There's murder. Um, there's racism. Uh, people break into people's houses. And this is what my friend's kids found out is someone broke into someone's house. They heard the story. They hurt those people, and they stole stuff, and they left. And so his little kids said, Dad, is, does that really happen? And he had to say, yeah. And the next question the kid is going to come up with is, is that going to happen to us? And look, when a kid says that, you have a couple different things you can say. You could say, I don't know, maybe. It's not going to work. Right? Your kid will have nightmares for the rest of their life. You could say, you know, the stats on crime in our neighborhood are only like real low. And we have a big dog that might bark and an alarm system that we pay good money for. And like the police department's right on the corner. Kid's not going to get any of that. Do you know my friend did? He's kind of a, he's just kind of a big personality. He, he said, all right. And he flexed his arm. He says, is this a big muscle? And his kids were like, yeah. <laughs> and he said, feel it. And so the kids, they're like three or four. So they're like grabbing his arm and like hanging off of it. And he kept saying to pull him and he, they couldn't pull him. And he says, dad's strong. And they're like, yeah. He said, for someone to get in this house, they're going to have to get through me. And they're not getting through me. And the, and the kids feel so loved, so protected, didn't think about it again. This is the best part. My friend is super out of shape, right? <laughs> he couldn't stop anyone going through that. <laughs> but to the kids, that's dad. And dad's the strongest guy in the world. This is what Paul is saying to this, I think, kind of scared, insecure church. You see Jesus? You see how strong he is? He made the world. Do you see that he's near you? Do you see that he loves you? 
Do you see that he's done everything necessary for you to be rescued? I don't care what comes in your life. No one's getting through him. No one's taking his people. The gates of hell won't be able to stop it. And one day, someday, Jesus is going to stop the head of the serpent. And all evil will come untrue. He tells us to look at Jesus. To bring all of ourselves and all of our suffering, all of our joy, all of our fears, everything. And to find true rest in locking eyes with a Savior who looks proudly upon his people. Do you know that Jesus? Do you think about him often? Do you put these words deep in your heart? Jesus is God. And he shows us that God is with us and God is for us. For those who believe in him. Look to him. Let me pray. The Father in heaven, you sent your son to die for your people. And Lord, we can, we can grow cold to that. We're in the south. We've heard that our whole lives. Many of us have. But let us never cease to lose amazement that Jesus, you, you were here. And, and you experienced everything that we've ever, you, you cried. You, you, you felt sadness when your friend passed away, even though you were about to raise him from the dead. That, that, that you experience the sadness and brokenness of this world, yet perfect. That you know what it feels like to be, to be in this place. Lord, help us to see, Jesus, that you are not a far away God, but you're near. And that we need you. Help us to see you more clearly and find you more beautiful, giving more and more of ourselves to you. That you have your people and will never let us go. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing the last song.